This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, For Jane by Gavin Broom and The Turn Horse by Douglas W. Milliken. For Jane, written and read by Gavin Broom. Listening time, 3 minutes, 43 seconds. For Jane by Gavin Broom. Whatever it was, it took a six-inch brush and a tin of white paint and scrawled, Jane, you will be my heart forever, kiss, 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 on the wall of the building facing her bedroom window. It certainly wasn't love. Given the number of kisses and the length of time pledged, naivety had teamed up with its favourite co-conspirator, impetuosity, and both had played more than a bit part. Love, though, sat in the wings and took nothing to do with it. Regret took over while the wet words were still crying down the wall. It had been a reckless act. It hadn't been thought through. No good could possibly come from it. At home, and at some point near the back end of a bottle of vodka, regret drowned. Up to the surface floated pride, who swelled at the thought of the burning declaration, bold and naked, under the orange glow from the streetlights. Occupants of the International Space Station, looking back between deserts and poles, would surely appreciate the craftsmanship of the message on the wall. Pride fell asleep to the idea of Jane looking from her window in a few hours, clutching her hands to her heart and melting once again. On the sofa, anxiety woke with a start and knocked over the vodka bottle, allowing the remaining dregs to ooze and disappear into the living room carpet, something that optimism suggested might be for the best. Ignorance, at least on a temporary basis that morning, was bliss. There had been no phone call, however, and a phone call had been expected. As minutes became hours and the sun inched across the sky, paranoia paced the floor. It tugged at hair. It stared at a mobile phone that resolutely refused to ring and tried to work out why. By early afternoon, obsession found itself in the area of Jane's house, wandering along the fringes of a self-imposed exclusion zone looking for signs of life, checking that the words on the wall were still there. Everything was as it should be. The blinds were open, and beyond them a silhouette of Jane or one of her roommates moved. The mobile phone remained silent. Three bars of reception, but no texts, no voicemail, no missed calls, nothing. It was pure anger that pounded the front door and shouted her name. The door opened, and the roommate, a handsome guy, someone who jealousy had never trusted, even when Jane mentioned he was gay, announced that she wasn't home. Rage barged into the house, shouting Jane's name while desperation searched the rooms for someone decreasingly likely to be found. All the while the gay roommate shouted insults, insisted Jane had left yesterday afternoon, threatened to call the police, said some other stuff that didn't register because nothing made much sense beyond yesterday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon. Before naivety and impetuosity found an artistic side with a six-inch brush. 
Her room sat empty. The handsome guy whispered because it was quiet now and he didn't need to shout anymore. Jane was gone. She wasn't coming back. And wherever she was, the guy hoped she'd find someone better. He hoped she'd find someone not so emotionally all over the place. Shame didn't know what to say, so in the end said nothing. At some point during the walk away from a house, a wall, a message, and the inaccessible part of a life, love made an appearance and began to ache. But by that point, it was too late. And deep down, love knew it had been far too late for far too long. Gavin Broom lives and writes in Michigan. He's been published over 60 times, both online and in print. He edits fiction for The Waterhouse Review. The Turin Horse, written and read by Douglas W. Milliken. Listing time, 4 minutes, 58 seconds. The Turin Horse. He meets his two friends to watch it. They sit in the kitchen and wait until the one's wife finally leaves for a knitting party. Then they begin. This, the friend explains, should be a guy thing. But after three hours and thirty edits, he cannot see how this was meant to appeal to anyone, let alone especially men. I could have been masturbating, he jokes, once it's done. I could have been cleaning my apartment. I want my three hours back. But by three hours, it's clear he means life. His friends laugh appreciatively, but they do not disagree. Nor, for that matter, do they concur. But later, he will remember the movie as a nightmare. Throughout each day, certain images will bubble up into his thoughts. The wind attacking the girl's hair to wrap around her face as if to blind her or the old man's glass eye rolling up into his fissured, desiccated scowl, the dry well and ceaseless brutality of wind. It haunts him, these events that are not his, replaying day after day without warning or intention. He's fine. Then, he remembers. He cannot wake himself from this fever dream. His friends, at least, are reacting the same way. That was not a movie, one tells him over the phone. They're both at work, each sequestered and whispering in a bathroom stall. That guy did something to us. He knows his friend is referring to the director, but for a moment, he thinks he means something else. At one point, he tries to explain to his girlfriend what's happening. He describes the one image that predominates his thoughts, of the old man sitting still and waiting for the storm to pass, of how in the background, the girl, this is the part he can't shake. She briefly enters the frame to say a word in another language that sounds like kiss, but means it's ready. Then she exits the frame, dissolving in inky black. What's ready? his girlfriend asks. A potato. That's all they have to eat. And he says it again as if it mattered. Potatoes. Oh. She doesn't get it. He's failed to explain what's wrong. His eventual method of exorcism is to get angry at the characters. 
The old man, always burning his mouth and hands, eating his one rationed potato each day. How both the old man and the girl only ever eat half. They're starving, he shouts at the shower head, the steering wheel, the dog. And they're throwing away their food. But this exorcism, of course, fails too. The images bubble up. Then they bubble again. Two people waiting for a storm's end. He knows it's not their fault. Something bigger is raising the stakes. After two weeks of these reluctant meditations, he stops knowing how he's supposed to behave. It's like what he's seen is an instruction that he's followed, leading him one step backward from the world. And now the things people say and do are beyond any hope of translation. What are they doing? What do they want? everything indistinct beyond the storm. One evening, his girlfriend comes home and sits close to him on the couch. He's been thinking about the eponymous horse, that is, if unwilling images can be considered thoughts. How it refuses to eat, slowly wasting away while the storm winds scour and surround. Now he turns to his girlfriend beside him. There is a need stenciled into her posture and her face. She's doing something with her lips. An animal fear builds somewhere above his belly, snaking like a fog off cold water. It's a need that she carries, but what she carries, he cannot know. So he asks her. His voice is the sound of hesitation. He asks her what she needs. And leaning in, as if in another language, she tells him, It's ready. Douglas W. Milliken's recent work has appeared in McSweeney's, Slice, and the Adirondack Review. The Turn Horse was written while a fellow at the I Park Foundation. Douglas lives in Portland, Maine. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.